Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 12th, 2017, and my guest is Chris Blattman, the Ramily E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Chris was on Econ Talk in 2014 to discuss the virtues and drawbacks of giving poor people cash versus other types of opportunities. And in 2016, he was here to talk about what are often called sweatshops, working in factories versus self-employment or smaller enterprises. Chris, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you. Now, today's episode is a little strange. Uh, it, it starts with the fact that a while back you wrote Uh, Not so long ago, you wrote an open letter to Bill Gates, uh, a very wealthy man, reacting to his idea of giving poor people chickens, poor people in Africa chickens, uh, as a way of helping them escape poverty. That open letter of yours to Bill Gates prompted a response from Lant Pritchett. And so I interviewed Lant about the topic of how do we help the poor, and inevitably some of your arguments and points came into the conversation. So I want to get your side of the story today on, on some of those issues, but more broadly on, and more generally on how we should think about development. Uh, let's start with Bill Gates's original idea. What was he suggesting and how did you respond to it? So you know, Gates and the Gates Foundation have a lot of big ideas, uh, and that this includes you know, driving down financial transaction costs and and tackling serious diseases and 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 so generally really terrific programs. Uh, one idea that Bill Gates has floated a few times in the last year is the idea that uh, chickens are the future uh, for Africa. That 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 basically that they're very poor people who don't have a lot of income and and they're basically scrounging around as subsistence farmers. And and if we could give them chickens. Then they'd be able to raise them. Uh, they they could eat them, of course, but but more importantly, they could sell them or they could sell the eggs and make some extra money. And this would make them much less poor. Maybe if they earn two dollars a day, maybe they'll now earn four dollars a day, or uh, who really knows? And I think he called this one of the best investments we could make, uh, uh, which you know is is probably true to some extent, except except what was unusual about his his idea was that he envisioned perhaps 30% of Africans, so maybe this would be 300 million people uh, raising these chickens rather than the existing number, which is maybe 5% of Africans, so maybe 15 million people, uh, for argument's sake. And what was your, how did, you wrote this open letter, what did you say in that letter? Well, I mean, so so we, you know, I share a common, we share a common premise, which is that uh, one of the reasons people are very poor is they they don't have the opportunity to engage in business. That it's actually not so hard for a lot of people to go from earning a dollar a day to two dollars a day, or two to four dollars a day, or five to ten dollars a day, by starting up a small enterprise. And that the main thing stopping them from uh, from doing this is they don't have any capital. If they had capital, they wouldn't be poor. So they don't have they don't have a lot of cash. They don't have a lot of 
assets. They don't have productive assets, and that could be tools. It could be buildings to build things in. That could be the raw materials and the skills to to build these things. Uh, it could be animals. Uh, a cow is an asset or a form of capital. A, a, a chicken or a bunch of chickens, and so they don't have these things, and they they generally don't have access to borrowing and. And so, so if you if they get access to capital, you often see people leap ahead and start businesses. So, so I think we share this idea. And and chickens are probably aren't a bad, they're not a terrible investment. Um, I guess I you know two you know before Bill Gates, who's one of the most influential people in development, who writes the most influential development letters. But, you know, be, I think it's important to sort of try to correct some possible problems. One is that it's not clear that anyone's going to actually make money if you suddenly go from 15 million to 300 million Africans uh, producing, uh, producing, uh, 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 I think I've even got my numbers wrong, actually. I'm not doing, not doing division and multiplication in my head. But, it doesn't you know, matter. It's a having, big increase. <laughs> exactly. And we're pretty having sure 33%, that, yeah, exactly. that could affect, a third of Africa. that could affect the price of eggs, you know, for hypothetical. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, you don't, I was surprised he made this argument because he's a very smart guy and he understands economics. So I think, I don't think, this isn't a crazy idea that if, if a third of Africans start producing chickens and eggs, that the price of chickens and eggs are going to fall pretty fast. And there's probably limits to how many chickens and eggs people can eat. So that's, it just struck me as an odd idea. And, and if it was some other organization saying we're going to do this, then I would sort of roll my eyes. But when Bill Gates says he's going to do it, there's a good chance he's really going to try and maybe succeed. And, and so, so it's not the best, not, not everyone should invest in the same thing. Um, and then of all the things people could invest in, it's just not clear to me. And in fact, I think there's a lot of evidence pointing to the idea that chickens are a fine investment, but but they're just, you know, they're not necessarily a great investment. And so so why we're so focused on giving people chickens, uh, I don't know. And But I thought your real point was if we gave them money, they'd be free to buy chickens if they wanted, or they could yeah. buy a piece of a cow, or they could buy a hammer, or they could buy access to electricity or whatever it is. And presumably people have a pretty good idea of what they need relative to what you think they need. And Mm -hmm. chickens just obviously, I mean, to me, we're going to get more deeply into the economics of this, but it's obvious to me that chickens is the wrong answer. Whatever the virtues of chickens are, uh, it, it can't be the case that people... Giving three hundred million people something is 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 yep. not as it's going to be better to give them money. I'm pretty confident about that. Now you could argue, but if you give them money, they're gonna they're going to use it on 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 gambling or drinking mm-hmm. or partying or whatever you think is the wrong use of the money. But they can sell the chicken. Come on, and they can mm-hmm. convert it into money. So this romance about I think chickens are the key to the future, like plastics are in the movie *The Graduate*. It just, it you know, or computer for in 1978. It just, it seems, it does seem a bit naive for someone who's clearly not a naive person. You right. could think of it as symbolic, but I think your point was, we've had these debates, which is what we talked about in a previous episode about different ways to help people with small amounts. Obviously, if you give them a thousand chickens. One person, a thousand chickens, and one person, a thousand something else, another person, a thousand something else. Maybe it would really change their lives. But if we're going to give micro amounts, like five chickens or one chicken, cash might be even better. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and you and I are both kind of fans of cash. Uh, there are problems with cash. We, that's a different episode. It's not what we're talking about today. We all understand mm-hmm. that cash has drawbacks too. But right. I thought you proposed – what was interesting about your response to Gates was let's have a horse race. 
uh, to add another animal to the metaphor mix, let's let's see <laughs> whether chickens outperform cash, right? Isn't that, wasn't that the thrust yeah, of the point? Yeah, and, and the reason is is because there's maybe like a deeper point. It's not about it's not about whether it, maybe there's lots of reasons cash is could be better than than chickens, and for the reasons you've just mentioned, and there's some risks as well. Those are all, and you know we won't we don't have to talk about. I think generally the picture looks pretty good for cash. We don't have to talk about the details today. But the, the deeper point is the problem with a lot of programs. You have to remember, we're already giving a lot of aid is give is donor agencies and governments giving very poor people stuff. It's giving them skills training. It's giving them chickens. It's giving them cash. It's giving them other forms of capital. It's giving them uh, uh, productive assets, right? And I, I'm, I'm excluding all the stuff that's about public goods and water and health. These are huge and they're important. And we're going to set them aside because they're just a different kind of thing. A lot of a lot of assistance is giving poor people stuff to either eat or to turn into something they can eat, meaning they can start a small business with it. And that's what the training and the cows and the chickens and the cash are mainly for. So the problem with most of these programs is nobody, everyone thinks about the numerator, what's the impact of this program? And nobody thinks about the denominator, which is what's the cost of providing this program? And then we sort of divide that to get some sort of return. And and when we compare those things, if you ignore the fact that some of these programs are dramatically more costly than others to deliver, then 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 even if one's more effective it, it, in, in terms of its impact, in terms of how big a business someone can grow, if it's also 10 times as a costly, that's a problem. And this is the problem with chickens in some senses. Somebody has to go and buy the chickens and then deliver them to the people, uh, or somebody has to go and hire a trainer and bring them to the village to train people in whatever it is you want to train. Maybe it's raising chickens. This is often a big part of these chicken programs, but maybe it's something that's standalone, like like uh, how to start a business or something. So, so uh, this is this is a problem because those people, all that labor and that transport is really, really, really expensive, and these people are often often remote areas. They're very poor. Even if they're in an urban area and they're not that remote, they're, they're, they're earning so little that that getting some reasonably middle-class person from that country to go off and buy the chickens and then deliver them or deliver the training or even get the training to go and deliver the training is so costly that it totally outweighs any potential benefits that, maybe not totally, but it, it grossly outweighs a lot of the benefits such that some of these programs, you know, some of the, the studies that have looked at chickens and given people chickens and cows and goats randomly pay off, but it takes something like 15 or 20 years before it, it they cover the cost, the, the basically the impact is as much as the program costs. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a lot. But I, I also thought you're making, and that's a great point. Those are great points. And I think, and they raise a separate issue we may come back to, which is, hey, I know what you need here. <laughs> you know, I yeah. alluded to that earlier. It's like, you need to learn how to make Butter here. Let me teach. Give me some butter machinery. I just there's some there's a certain lack of um, appreciation for um, knowledge and how hard it is to understand what how to impact a person's right. life and the material well, versus the, other the thing that's going spiritual on is, you know, and uh, you know I don't. <laughs> you know, I, I have a lot of friends in these organizations. My wife works for International Rescue, uh, Rescue Committee. Uh, I've spent a lot of time working with these organizations, and one of the you know. If you put yourself in their shoes, first of all, you, you don't always know. Uh, and the thing is, is you've seen a lot of programs where people get chickens without the training. 
because that seems like a good idea. Or they just get cash. Like you see a lot of examples where people fail. You don't know if everyone fails. You don't know how many people succeed. You know a lot of people fail. And we know this is true. Like the, the big cash experiments I've done and others have done, at least half the people don't really move ahead as a result of this cash. They start a small enterprise and it fails. This is what business is. And and that's hard to, you don't, you don't know if on balance people are succeeding or failing, uh, especially when you just give them cash. With, at least with the chickens, you can see something there. Um, and you're really hesitant to let people fail. So you, you want to do, you want to invest as much as possible in people to minimize the risk of failure because they're in your circle. You, you see them, you care about them, you're responsible for, you've done something to their lives. So you, in some ways you are responsible and you have the ability to continue to help them. And, and you don't see all these other people you're not helping. So doubling or tripling or quadrupling or even further increasing the cost of a program, not to make them dramatically more successful, but just to reduce their cost of failure is really natural human instinct. Some people would say that's their responsibility. You could make a moral argument that that's appropriate, but I think that's what drives this cost up. So it's easy for me to sort of from afar say, well, I don't know any of these people. They're all strangers to me and I'd rather see more people help for less. And if some fail, well, that's going to happen anyways, rather than just investing in a small number of people and trying to keep them from failing. But but if I were in their position, certainly when I raise my own children, I don't take that approach. <laughs> uh, and that's another extreme example, right? And so, so, so uh, you know, I'm sympathetic. But, but as, a, as a country, as a small NGO, small non-governmental organization, you can afford to make your own moral choice about whether you help a lot of people a little bit and let them fail sometimes, or if you help just a few people and really foster them through. That's, but if you're the U.S. government's aid agency or the Ugandan Bureau of blah, blah, blah that's in charge of this, in some sense, you don't get to make that choice. In, in some sense, your responsibility, I think, is to, is to help the most people. But I also thought you're making a methodological point with Gates, which is really interesting, which is, well, maybe it'll have a good impact. Maybe it won't. Uh, obviously, if you sat down, if you, if you and I had 30 minutes with Mr. Gates, we'd say, you know, gee, 300 million is a big increase. Maybe that's going to have an unexpected effect on you wouldn't want to generalize from the 5% who have chickens now to the 30% you'd like to have them. And he'd nod say that's a good point. But I think you're trying to say, let's try to measure this. Let's try to actually see, let's learn something before we launch this enormous, grandiose experiment. Let's do a pre-experiment where we try to see which is better. And we'd, we'd learn so much that we would be able to help people more down the road, not just with your with your venture. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, and you know, this is a this is actually I make this point sort of in general. Like I, if I go to pick a country, if I go to Uganda or Liberia or Colombia, which are all places where I spend a lot of time or have spent a lot of time, you'll see the government or the World Bank or somebody saying, "All right, we have this five million or." hundred million or five hundred million dollar program that we're gonna roll out over the next five years. And we've written the program manual and we're gonna spend all that money doing X. And X is something quite specific. It's it might be like chickens. It might be job training. And and then they just launch into it and and inevitably it fails because what are the chances that you ever get that formula right from the outset when you implement it? And and so two or three years in they redesign and they start figuring it out and and they, they don't have a lot of sense of what's going on. And then they, um, maybe then they run some evaluations or they turn to more of the evidence. 
and and let's say they get a slightly better program for the last half of that five-year program, then that's a lot of money wasted. And and if it's a credit to that country, meaning if it's a loan to that country, then then that some future taxpayer of that country has to pay that back, which seems kind of tragic, or it has to be forgiven, and some future taxpayer of this country has to pay that back. And and that that just was all money that, that you know that could have been averted. And I I so I every time I'm there, I'm saying, listen, why instead of doing this, why don't you do like five or ten things? on a small scale for the first year. You have to scale up, you have to get moving. I understand the political pressure, so get moving. But why don't you just try five or 10 things? And maybe you then really rigorously study what you're going to do. That would be fine. Sometimes we should do that. But even if you don't, you'll probably just, it'll be obvious which of those five or 10 things seems to be more successful than the others. Certainly the ones that are failures will be more obvious. And and then you'll know with more precision if you invest some money in studying it. So, so as a general principle, this is just something that's not done in aid. This sort of trial and error, that that that, and, and and with with some rigorous testing. And we've we've managed in the last ten years to introduce the idea of rigorous testing with randomized trials, without introducing this idea of trial and error and moving ahead and and trying many ideas. And that's that's a problem. I I, I would like to see both. So so that's kind of what I'm saying. To this is just another case. Instead of like scaling up your your crazily specific program that's only been a little bit tested, why don't you try a few different things and then push ahead with the thing that's most successful? And and in this case, I think we've got enough evidence to say, actually, we're doing a lot of this chicken stuff regardless of whether Gates is doing it. We're doing a lot of handing out of chickens and cows. And and maybe it's, I don't know if it's a billion or 10 billion or $100 billion a year, but it's it probably, it's somewhere in that range. And if we could spend $10 million just to like tweak the direction of that, to sort of kill a bad idea and and replace it with a less bad idea, that's kind of what I want to see. I want to see us rigorously evaluate, like run a horse race between these different things that we could do, these different varieties, kind of like trial and error, but in a structured way, and then just replace the bad things with less bad things and 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 thereby make a lot of very, very unfortunate people a bit better off. Um, that, that, that's basically it. So I have a lot of things to say to that. I don't know if it's a fantastic summary of, I think, the position you're taking. Um. I, I just have to mention in, in passing, though, you said, well, of course it fails. And I think a lot of people would say, well, how could it fail? You're injecting all this money into these these sectors, regions, poor people, whatever. It's got to have some effect, some overwhelmingly good effect. You're putting, you're going to add $100 million into this community. Uh, and it's really, I think, a sobering reality that it often doesn't work very well. So I just want to mention that uh, to the point where you say, well, of course it doesn't work. Uh, but I think most intuitive Everyday people would say uh, it would work akin to their natural inclination, say, to inject money into the U.S. school system. Because, of Mm -hmm. course, the more you spend, the more education you get, which, of course, isn't true. It might be true, but it need not be true. And and, and I would say even if you're more optimistic, and I I think these would be good, like – I think if you put in more inputs, you're going to get more outputs. You put in more money in the education system, I think probably you're going to get more education or more better outcomes. Not always. You're right. Same with these aid chickens. The chickens aren't going to be a bad idea. They're not going to all fail. It's just we're putting so much money into this that someone's going to have not, – not not only is someone going to have to pay back in future, but it it's such a missed opportunity. People – like it's really desperate to – if you were making a dollar or two dollars a day, this means like your your child is probably – 
going, you know, the chances your child dies in infancy or of some disease or, or that some crisis hits and then really terrible things happens to someone in your family is just so high. And that's also true at any level of poverty. Uh, and it's just more dire and more risky the poorer you are. So, so to, to sort of callously and irresponsibly in my mind not try to use this sort of trial and error approach and try to do the right thing and rather than just have 33% of Africans or something producing chickens where they might be a bit better off, they'd probably be better off. What if like, that's such a missed opportunity to really change some people's lives in, a, in, one of the, in one of the rare instances where I think aid can really have a big impact. It, it really is an area where we can be super effective. And I don't say that about a lot of aid. And so, so it's, such a, it's such a sad, it's such a sad, tragic thing not to, not to do this more responsibly. I want to challenge the premise that underlies that, even though I'm sympathetic to it. It sounds great. We had on the program a while back uh, Adam Sifu, CIFU, author of a um, very provocative book, co-author of a book, Ending Medical Reversal, where he shows that so many times a study will be done, a cross-sectional longitudinal study of some a statistical analysis of some device or some dietary change, some relationship in epidemiology uh, is alarming or effective, whatever it is, and people start doing this technique or avoiding this technique. And then 15 years later, uh, there's an actual randomized control trial where people are put into two different groups. You're not using statistical techniques to try to hold things constant. You're actually using uh, a real experiment, not a pseudo experiment. And you find out that the original uh, finding doesn't hold up under the randomized control trial. So this is, you know, this is why that's called, you know, we could call it the gold standard of, of experimental science. It's, it's what scientists do. They, they see if things can be replicated. They try to actually test things directly. It's a really nice thing. And there's a huge, I don't want to call it a fad, um, a trend, I'll call it a trend. It could be a fad in development economics to do randomized control trials. The, what you're, which is what you're talking about. Wouldn't it be great? Do five or ten experiments, see what works, what doesn't work. But the problem, it seems to me, is that unlike epidemiology or medical things where a trial can often actually illuminate what does and doesn't work, it strikes me that in human societies, that's a lot more difficult. So, example we've mentioned before in the program uh, is deworming. Deworming got a lot of excitement about it because it's, you know, some experiments it showed to be very effective in helping children if you took the worms and parasites out of their system, they could sit in school longer, make more money, et cetera, be, have better lives. But it wasn't, it's not obvious that it scales. It's not obvious that it worked in other villages. It's not obvious, et cetera. So isn't the part of the problem here, and it's just a rea is this a reality or am I being too skeptical, that the kind of knowledge that you would like to produce with those trials in the early stages of a large-scale uh, rollout of a program they're not necessarily going to be as reliable as a true scientific experiment would be. Right. Well, yes. Yeah. So, you know, this is basically right. But the, the question is, is through the, I guess the premise, my, my argument would be, it's just, I think it's a pretty basic premise through the accumulation of lots and lots of empirical evidence and theoretical thinking, and then using that empirical evidence to sort of understand like our theory of poverty, like why are people poor and what kinds of things make them less poor. The, the accumulation of lots of evidence from lots of places is how we get a better theory. This is just how it works and it will be hard. It will be harder than in maybe than in physics or medicine for exactly the reasons you say. But there's a big difference here. So 
the the deworming excitement is coming off of this is actually you, I don't know if you know this I worked on this experiment when I was a graduate student. Uh, this was like one of my first jobs in development. I ran one of the follow up surveys. I did not know that. Um, yeah, so I I was part of this. I ran the five year follow up survey, and so I spent a lot of time with these kids who got this deworming medicine. It's a very incestuous little group, small incestuous group, development economics. Um, so uh, listen, there's there's there was one big trial showing big effects, and it was on the shores of Lake Victoria in Kenya which is the birthplace of humanity and then not coincidentally the birthplace of human parasites. So so a, a, an impact of deworming medicine there is going to be not surprisingly quite impactful probably. And, and if you go somewhere else, then where you're not on the shores of a parasite-filled lake, then then maybe it's going to be different. And that doesn't surprise me. And, and we don't actually have a lot of trials of deworming medicine elsewhere. And the other ones haven't been very good or they haven't been very long-term or they haven't measured economic outcomes and educational outcomes. So, you know, we just don't know. Whereas when it comes to poverty, we have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of not just randomized control trials, but but all sorts of evidence. You know, a great book is Poor Economics by Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, who, who sort of pull together all the descriptive and observational and qualitative and experimental data. And just a lot of it points to particular view of poverty that people are that people are that people have constraints that from little access to credit and little capital and little access to insurance and overwhelming evidence that when even just one of those constraints is relieved maybe by cash maybe by a chicken that people leap ahead you know that you can make improvements on the margin and uh and it's not some magic formula and 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 you can also improve the way financial markets function and then people get more access to insurance and credit and capital and things. And so, so I think we, we just have a, it's a, just a totally different story. And everything I'm saying about both chickens and cash are very consistent with that theory. And now the, the randomized trials, which, you know, I was proposing we do on large numbers of people in large numbers of countries in different parts of the world in a way that we could get at what you're saying is sort of getting at the finer details saying, okay, can we, not knowing if we can make any general statements, but do we see a general pattern across many types of people and many types of places that these that chickens tend to be lower return than cash? That people tend to use cash wisely in many places. That 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 the the that and and then also very importantly to figure out what we call like the general equilibrium effects, like or the spillover effects. Like what happens to the whole local economy when you get this giant influx of chickens or cash? Like is it good? Is it bad? And it could go either way. We don't really know. So. So there's a really different evidence base, and then the the kind of experiment I was proposing, which costs fifteen million dollars or some number like that, because it's much bigger than anything everyone's ever run, is in some sense designed to get around exactly this concern. So that's a nice defense. In fact, you're kind of channeling your inner Lent Pritchett there when you talked about the accumulation of knowledge. He made the similar argument, which I found unpersuasive, but I find a little more persuasive in your case. It's possible he was talking about general economic theory that small any one piece of economic research may not be that informative, but it eventually creates this great base of knowledge. And I think that's um, romanticizing what economic research does in, in somewhat uh, inaccurately. But let's put uh, that to the side. I think. Well, I, if I could just interrupt, actually, one thing is I, I don't think that knowledge is accumulated to like a consistent understanding of how something works across 
lots of different areas. I also study, I mean, my, you know, my, I'm a professor of global conflict studies in principle, I should be, you know, I, I actually spend most of my time studying violence as well. And we don't really have a good understanding of what reduces violence. Like the things have not accumulated to a coherent answer. Yeah. Or if you take the macro study of aid uh, and whether aid is good or bad and what it's good or bad effects are in economics or politics, we don't have a coherent answer. It's sort of accumulated into a mess. Yeah, that was my, uh, that's my, it's <laughs> closer yeah, to my but, view. But there's, but right, but other things, other things have turned out to, sometimes in medical, certain medical research, and yeah. in this case, I we think in our stuff. sort of, our micro understanding of poverty, it turns out, oh, actually this thing seems to work pretty much similar ways across, you know, we're, we're wrong in lots of details, I'm sure, but more than other things I, I've understood. And this is why I come on podcasts to write about we should we should act on this, and and I don't come on and talk about violence. I don't have a coherent message about what we should do to reduce violence. I don't know that we've accumulated to a coherent answer. But in this case, the the world works in a simple or straightforward enough way, or we have enough evidence, or something about something about the situation is just I think points us to more confidence than than in a lot of other areas and so great like and and the wonderful thing is is it can like a lot of people who are in a really 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 terrible place can benefit from that in a relatively simple way this is one of the things that aid does well like just logistically like just get a lot of stuff out there that seems to work on its own this isn't where i thought we'd end up but let's stay here for a while because it's so interesting you're telling me that the aid literature is indecisive, imperfect, <clears throat> which I think is true. Um, many people would disagree with you, by the way. I think some people would say, oh, we know exactly what works. In fact, uh, Lam Pritchett said so. We know it's just it's property rights and free markets and prices. And, and while I'm sympathetic to that, I think it actually is more complicated than that. Uh, other people would say, we know what works. We've had Jeffrey Sachs on the program. We just need to give a lot more money and we need to spend it well. Um, and he thinks he knows how to spend it well. So... But you're skeptical. Okay, fine. But well, you know, there. But Jeffrey Sachs is some. If if you want to sort of say, how do we get like an African nation? How do we help an African nation go from fifteen hundred dollars ahead to three thousand dollars ahead? That's not necessarily a hard problem, uh, or or you know that that's that's a hard problem. But I mean, it's it's a much different problem to say how does how do, how does that nation? What what could we do as outsiders, or what could that government do as insiders to get to twenty thousand dollars ahead to some sort of like middle income status? And then nobody has a good answer to that. So so sometimes they're just talking about different changes. When they talk about development, they can be talking about different That's things. That's a great point, which is what I what I was going to say actually. So I was going to say, if you're telling me that at the micro level we know that it's good to give people more access to financial markets, they have the ability to borrow because they're often financially constrained. Or we know that if we give them things, they'll be better off. It's not so interesting, really. And it really comes to what I think is the crux of the matter, which is the what I would call uh, the real essential point that, that Pritchett was upset about in, in that previous episode, which is the following. He's, he's claiming that, and I'm I have mixed feelings about this, but I don't care. It doesn't matter. I want to hear what you have to say. He's claiming mm -hmm. that the real problem isn't poor people. It's poor countries. These people are mm -hmm. in places with bad economies, bad government, bad economies. And to put a Band-Aid on their problems with a chicken is the wrong thing to be spending time on. We ought to be spending time on how to figure out how to liberate their economy, liberate the skills to, to cooperate together in a market setting, which is how you, we know that's how you get to 20000 The way you get to 20000 right. is you got to have a, a vibrant 
labor market. You got to have a vibrant skills market. You got to let people trade and exchange with each other within a country and outside the country. And we know all that already. And so that's what we ought to be spending our time on, not whether five chickens is going to improve somebody's life. Of course they would. They'd improve mine too. I'd eat them. I'd be happy. I like chicken. Um, My wife, she's a vegetarian, but she'd be happy to see me happy. (laughs) We know all that. So what's the, what is the, uh, defense of, of of the approach that you're suggesting of these micro experiments to get people truly out of poverty. We understand all, what you already what you're saying, it's all true. It's not important. So you know, I, I don't these things aren't in complete contradiction. So if you want to make I think Lance larger, he's got two big points. And, you know, Lance, and I I think I've mentioned to you in the past Lance is I mean, Lant was one of my first teachers in development and still remains sort of one of my idols in development. And, and everything of his I can read, I do read, uh, because I think he's got, you know, he's, he has a really, he, has a, he, he says a lot of original things and he has his finger on the pulse of these things. And he's made two points here that I think are true. One is that um, the development community at large has has tended to focus on sort of this weird extreme form of poverty rather than just thinking of other people who are just, very poor instead of extremely poor. So there's this artificial threshold of a dollar, two dollars a day that distorts a lot of policy. That's fine. I I, I agree with that. And and I a lot of the things, all the chickens and cash stuff I'm talking about, you, you can ignore that concern. You can say, well, you know, I think the chickens and cash can help someone who's extremely poor and very poor and just a little bit poor. Every all of these people have limited access to capital. I think that's what we would what we're learning from the evidence and what we would learn from my experiment. Um, his bigger point is that uh, that there's maybe a misallocation of time and policy in academia. That that a lot of people are just focused on the small stuff. That these bright shiny RCTs has come along. It's it's very appealing to get an answer. That a lot of people there's all this data and computer technology that lets us do a lot of answer a lot of small questions well. And yeah, an so article real quick. Get an article on your CV and yeah. And and so there's two. You, it, we the, with a profession, the world would be a better place. If more smart policymakers and more smart economists and political scientists were spending more sweat and brains and money on big questions about growth, in his case, and 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 so I think that's probably right. I think I think we probably do have a slight misallocation. I think you can make a good argument, but that doesn't mean. But it doesn't mean that you know he sort of made a he was made a, he sort of exaggerates as, as some do and say well we should only focus on growth that most people should just focus on growth and and I think that's wrong for two reasons one is I think it's the wrong big thing to focus on and we could get to that but I but I think more immediately I think you can't ignore the poverty because because what this says so listen if I say I'm going to everyone needs to be focused on growth if we just dedicate all this time even if he's right. And we were able to make future unborn generations better off because we're spending all this time and money and brains and energy on growth. The fact is, is there's still a lot of really horribly off people today. Now, if you if you sort of you some people will make that trade off. They'll say, listen, better to make 20 generations much better off than trade off making them slightly better off just to make these people less poor. That's just. As someone who's say a utilitarian who wants to maximize the most good for the most people will would say we need to sacrifice today's generation to help these future generations. That's the way to maximize the good. But if you if you have sort of a different moral calculus, that if you think, for example, that we're only as 
good as say the least among us or that we have a responsibility to help the very, very least among us, even if that means we wealthy people or future wealthy people uh, who are not yet born will be substantially worse off. That's that's also a defensible claim. And and I guess I, I would say like I'm willing to make that trade off to some degree. And I think a lot of I think that's a I think that's fundamentally why so much policy is dedicated towards alleviating poverty that that even if we knew how to make future generations better off with certainty it would still make sense to spend a lot of time worrying about poverty today that's a that's a not everyone's going to feel that way but it's a totally justifiable way and that's how i feel so i'm not a utilitarian but i do think we should improve future generations at the expense of the current one for a different reason so let me lay that out and you can respond uh the people themselves who are alive today would want us to do that because they love their children and their grandchildren. And if I said to them, I have a choice, I'm going to give you a choice. I can give you a bunch of chickens and I'm going to make you, your suffering less dire, or I'm going to keep, we're not, you're not going to get any chickens. You're going to lead a miserable life, but your children and grandchildren are going to lead very, very great, greatly improved, materially improved lives, I think most, if not all of those people would jump at the chance. And we see that people do that all the time. They take risks mm-hmm. and they impoverish themselves. They risk death to come to richer countries. Uh, so that, w- that would be my, my argument there. But I think to me, the real issue is just the severity of the poverty for people who are, you know, near death that yes, we need to do th- something to those people now for people who are just having a hard time. If we can, I uh, had mm-hmm. that proviso, of course, we know how, uh, and I think people should choose to, to morally to, to do that. But I think the, uh, for people who are just uncomfortable, I think they'd be thrilled to live with that discomfort and have their children thrive. Right. So, I mean, we can debate this, um, on some level, it's a Fine. moot point to, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a moot to sort of, to the defense of my argument where we should, you know, I, I want, I, I'm personally in my life, I agree with Lance. I'm like, I spend too much time on these stupid randomized control trials and on poverty alleviation. It's important, but this is not what I think is really important or, or really where I can, you know, contribute in some way. So in some sense, I'm unbalanced. I, I fundamentally agree, but, but still, I, I, I think this is the, this experiment, this grand thing that I'm, pitch to boil is Bill Gates is is important and I would even work on it. It's the last thing I really want to do. It's really miserable to run these. It's really, really hard and miserable. I hate running these things. It's so logistically and managerially intensive and and you don't think. You just sort of make things happen. And I'm okay at that. I'm pretty good at that. But I I, I don't enjoy it. And and I would rather spend my time on something else. But I will do it if I have to because nobody else seems to be doing it. I will do it because we live in a world not where we're making these grand philosophical choices about how to orient aid. And we live in a world where the, the rich countries and poor country governments have made the decision that we're going to spend a 10 or a hundred billion dollars a year giving the very poorest people stuff. And if I can do a little thing, spend like 10% of my time for three years and $15 million of somebody else's money to sort of say, guess what? You could be twice as effective and really make an impact on people's lives if you just killed this bad idea and, and did something less bad. That's that's a huge thing. There's a way to just sort of, given the world we live in, on the margin, there's a handful of studies that I think could really sh- reallocate how this giving people stuff is done. And, uh, and, and, that would be a big thing. And I think that's that's actually what I say that because I look back at the last 10 years and the cash transfer work that's been done, including my own experiments, 
And I say that's that's the impact this had. That despite the fact that I wasn't working on what I really wanted to work on, uh, it was important to work on. And I actually think that had a lot more immediate impact, precisely because we live in a world where there's just buckets of money, pipelines of money going to these places being spent poorly, and we can that can be improved on the margin. Superbly said. Uh, I salute that. Beautiful. Uh, has Bill Gates responded? No, and you know what? Side Someone crickets. pointed out to me. Well. <laughs> I I even you know I got a chance to so so someone pointed out to me after I wrote this letter that they said do you know that Bill Gates follows you on Twitter that it turns out he only follows like 300 people and a number of them are development people for obvious reasons yeah. and one of them turns out was me and so I thought oh this is I had no idea I I'm going to direct message Bill Gates uh, and so I thought maybe he reads his Twitter feed like why else would he only follow like two or 300 people and so I even I even direct messaged him on Twitter and. And politely saying, you know, with all due respect, this was my critique. I'd love to sort of have a conversation about this if you're interested. And then, yeah, crickets. Well, maybe, I don't know that he listens to Econ Talk, but this could put him over the edge if he does. This could be your, you may be getting, you know, when this comes out, you'll probably get um, a summons. But I and I'd be happy right. to interview Mr. Gates. I'm, I'm like, I'm a marginalist. I, yeah, I think sure. every every little bit matters. So it's definitely racist. This, this might be it. Raise the probability, uh, and I, I want to just say publicly, I would love to interview Bill Gates for Econ Talk. So if, if Bill, if you're listening, or if, uh, someone who knows you is listening and thinks that would also be a good idea, uh, please get in touch. <laughs> but it is, it is an interesting question. By the way, there's just this is a sub point that that the uh, and you're sort of I think you have feet in in, in all the various camps. Uh, the academic world, there's, there's the academic world, there's the money world. Uh, which would be the Gates Foundation. And then there's this weird nether region of international organizations like the World Bank that has academic people in it, in and out of it. They come and go. Uh, so that whole thing is um, – they all have their own rules. And uh, I, I'd like to hear you act, react to the idea that that the incentives are what ruin where development economists spend their time. Uh, of course, people have written not so nice things about the appeal of traveling to exotic places and having uh, nice meals and Range Rovers and carry around and all that. But uh, talk about the incentives that you experience as an academic, but also maybe as somebody who's in these different worlds, even if you're not, uh, you don't get calls from Bill Gates' cell phone. Mm-hmm. The incentives to go do these kinds of things. Whatever kind of it is. I mean, there are yeah. incentives that encourage some people to just. Right. Do all kinds of things, articles on this or that, uh, spend time in a particular country because the World Bank funds it, uh, and all of it. Mm -hmm. We do what we like, and we also care, most of us do, about whether it makes the world a better place, as you point out. You confessed a minute ago that you wish you maybe spent a little bit less time on some of these things and more on the bigger things. So just just reflect on that. Well, answering the bigger questions would still put me firmly, maybe even more often, in in foreign places. Like right now, I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, I'm, I happen to be studying a lot of gangs in Latin America and also in, in Chicago. And, and the thing that's holding me back from being more effective is my lack of time to go and spend time in these places. So, so I think one of the, I mean, one of the fundamental incentives is, is I think if they're to answer important questions about other parts of the world, you have to spend a lot of time in other parts of the world. And you also, not just talking to people or collecting data, but also building relationships with other academics who are there or other policymakers or because it's it's a big 
you know, it's it's not an individual production function. This is so 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 that's you know, the answering the question requires you to be there, big or small question, whatever. If you're going to do this right, the incentives in the economics profession for a long time and to less lesser extent now, but we're always against uh, young economists especially graduate students going and spending lots of time in the field. And in some sense, there's still a discouragement to spend a lot of time off in another country. You still spend relatively little time compared to, say, other academic disciplines. Um, and, and it used to be zero. There's a, an interesting set of people to bring on would be people like Michael Kramer, Chris Udry, who really were development economists who, who broke the path in the maybe the 1980s and 1990s by spending a lot of time in places like in Ghana and Chris's case and, and Kenya and Michael's case, doing this kind of work, really pioneering it. You know, there are others as well. They, they sort of stand out in my mind. And, uh, and, and showing that you could do important work and, and making development economics credible again in the profession and, and showing and then, and then sending their students to, to Ghana or Kenya. Like this is why I was in, why was I in Busia, Kenya running this deworming experiment? Because Michael's student, Ted Miguel, uh, he sent to run some experiments and collect data. And Ted did his dissertation there and he started his own studies in Busia, Kenya. And then I showed up at Berkeley and Ted was this uh, young prof, maybe just one or two years in, who became my dissertation advisor. And I, and he sent me to Kenya my first semester. And then why did I end up working on violence in northern Uganda? Because my, the second time I got sent to Kenya, I was sitting in a, in a cafe and I, and I met a woman who, because uh, it takes 20 minutes or 30 minutes for the Hotmail page to load up, which should tell you what year it was. And, uh, and so I start, struck up a conversation with the woman next to me who was a, doing this qualitative study of of children affected by conflict and child soldiers in northern Uganda, and and then a you know a year later I was landing by plane in northern Uganda to run a survey that looked a lot like what Ted was doing with deworming, except I was studying the effects of violence, and that became my dissertation. And 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 it also so happens that we produced um, several papers and a marriage and now two children. <laughs> uh. Which is the more important than the papers? Well, just, just, uh, yeah, of course absurd. it is. And, and and but the best part about that story is the the unintended the you know, most unintended consequences are negative. But here we yeah. have the positive unintended consequence of lousy internet access. That yes. You're sitting there for twenty to thirty minutes waiting for your page to load, and you meet your future wife. What a great uh, right. But but then also but my where then I've sent my students to go work on my projects in northern Uganda and later Liberia and now Colombia and now they are graduating their PhDs and they're getting jobs uh, and they are doing amazing research and they are sending their students to <laughs> these are and they're and wherever they happen to work. And so this has been this amazing thing that has happened. You talk about the incentives, it's 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 against the grain, against the incentives to go and invest all this time and really understanding a place and putting all you know the inputs required for one of these big experiments or any big study data data, you know, there's you have to collect your own data in a place like Africa. Uh, most of the time. And so the incentives are all against that. So why are people doing it? I think they're really passionate about the questions. And of course, you know, now now there's its own set of esteem and we have our own dysfunctions as a profession and we're doing a lot of the wrong things and so on and so on. But but nonetheless, like this is still a big positive change. And And I've always said that the most important thing about 
randomized control trials is not the causal effect that lots of people we've identified. Like the effect of the effect of like the, the important part about the deworming experiment and all this time in Kenya by all these people is not. It's now the fact that Ted Miguel and Michael Kramer could lecture you for hours on Kenyan politics and development in a very sophisticated way that has nothing to do with the causal estimate. Economists now have a much richer understanding of the way the world works, how the aid sector works, what the political and social and organizational dysfunctions are of everything from USAID to some government in some far corner of the world. Uh, there's this rich knowledge that was just not there before that I think is really affecting the way the theories we're developing. It's affecting the kind of teaching. It's affecting the questions we're asking. It's affecting the advice and. And I think that's so been so much more important than any stupid little causal effect. That's great, and I I, I think Adam Smith would be happy about it, but maybe I'm wrong. I think uh, I like to think of Adam Smith. Maybe I'm romanticizing him, which I'm prone to, but I like to think of him as open to the uh, a richer understanding of of human activity than uh, our sort of blackboard theories and and obviously was a student of many aspects of human life, not just the financial and monetary side. Right, uh, right. What you're exactly. really arguing is that we should, it's good that we become more like sociology, uh, which uh, could be true. Mm -hmm. um, I would have, I've argued that the reason we shouldn't work on big pictures, big picture issues and big picture questions is because we don't know much about them. So I think most people would argue that Governance, uh, political institutions are a big problem. Uh, I suggested recently that what we should do with that $15 million, say, is pay a leader to leave and replace <laughs> them with someone more. Uh, of course, obviously, you'd replace them with another dictator is the problem. But if you could change a political system, that would be the way you'd spend your money. We don't know mm -hmm. how to do that. And the idea that we should be spending more time understanding that isn't doesn't necessarily follow the idea that that's the most important thing. Uh, if we can't figure out the levers to improve it, it really doesn't matter. So, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I'm more. I, it, it's a. It's. I'm more hopeful. I think we don't know a lot about it. I think we also. I, I, I think that. I, I actually teach a class on on this, and and it turns out Lant Pritchett is just written a book on this as well with two co-authors. He's focused more on building on something a bit more narrower, which is building state capabilities, which is basically making states more effective and that includes public sectors and governments. And he, it's a, actually a free book online. And I think it's one of my favorite books I've read this year. So, so he didn't talk What's about that, but What's it called? It's called build, I think it's called building state capabilities and, and we'll put a uh, link up to it for this. Exactly. Episode. And, and it's, and he, they even negotiated to be able to, get this free online and, and I think he has a, a course as well where you can go along this as well I don't uh, and so so you, there's both a book and a, and a free course online um, and I teach a class I call it sometimes I call it order and violence sometimes I call it political economy development but it's really about these big questions about saying you know what what doesn't I think Lant would agree with this growth is the wrong way to think about this uh, we don't need more people focused on economic growth I think we need more people focused on understanding state capabilities and democratization and politics in these countries. There's a fair amount already, most of them are political science. A lot of, there's a lot of bad research, there's a lot of good research. And I, by, by spending a lot of the last 10 years reading that research and trying to teach it and learning it, and, and, and when I say I'm I wanna reorient what I do, in some ways I, 
this is the book I would like to write if I probably I won't write it for 10 years, but but one day I will write this book about about this kind of political development, if you will. And um, and I think that's fundamentally the problem. And it's, it's hard for me to believe, partly because I've read so much that really has changed the way I think about how the world works. And and I think if it could be translated into terms and sort of a set of messages that people could absorb and understand in a less academic way, I think it would be really impactful. Uh, so one, I think we could translate it more. One, I think we could do more of it. And um, But it is it is kind of a big, it's a it's it's a big risk. Like it's going to. It's hard to see immediate payoffs. Yet, uh, I guess the reason I think it can't be ignored is maybe you could put it simply like this: that China and Brazil and Russia and and Vietnam and a whole host of countries that are currently like middle income or a little poor, a little richer, are generally growing you know, at a reasonably quick pace, like say, I don't know, maybe it's 5% a year and some years that'll be higher and some years that'll be lower, but, but they're, they're basically on their way to being high middle or upper middle, or I mean, uh, or even upper income countries. Like they're, they're growing. And, and as long as there's no major world cataclysm, um, then in 20 years, those are going to be basically rich countries. And that's going to be most of the population of the world. And, and that's probably most countries in the world. But there's a bunch of countries, a couple in you know South Central and South America, like maybe Bolivia, certainly Guatemala, and and maybe like a Honduras or Jamaica, and much of Sub-Saharan Africa, and some parts of Central Asia that are just not growing at all, or they're growing a little bit, but uh, not very fast, or they're growing a little bit, but but there's a lot of inherent political instability, and it's hard to imagine that growth lasting for long before there's some tanking. And so it's it's possible that in 15 or 20 years, there will be about 20 or 30 countries in the world that are still enormously poor and unstable next to what are generally a relatively homogenous group of middle and high income countries. Um, and that's going to be a bad situation. It's not, it's going to, it's a better situation than today where we've got a lot of poor people, but there's still going to be, there's going to be this growing inequality and these are going to be places of instability and there's going to be a lot of negative spillovers for the rest of the world. So Somali piracy is one and 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 extremist groups in the Middle East or parts of Central and West Africa is another and and they're they're they might make life troublesome for us here, but they're definitely going to make life very difficult for the modestly successful or very successful neighbors they have. And so that's that sort of these fragile states is, you know, that's the bad, that's the unfortunate name. I don't have a better name for them. These fragile states are going to be the fundamental security and development problem in the world in 15 or 20 years. And so what choice does the rest of the world have, but to think really, really hard about this? Why are you going to wait 10 years? I mean, oh, first to write of all, the book? Yeah, because first of all, even if you finish it, it's going to be 11, and then it's got to get published. That's 12, and I'll be 74 years old. <laughs> I, I may not be here. Econ Talk may not be here. You're not going to get an Econ Talk episode out of it. Write it sooner, and we can talk about it. Yes, I, I'm teasing, I but I'm half serious. I'm half serious. I, I'm, I'm half. I I would like to think I could write it in the next couple of years. I'm not. I, I guess I I've just started to put, not pen to paper, but but you know keyboard to, to to word document or and and uh, 
and talking to friends who've written books, it always takes longer than they think. So, and and then you know how it is to be in our position where you're pulled in a hundred different directions. Um, not least of which, you know, the problem with these randomized control trials is they do crowd out the rest of the things you're trying to do. So I, I made a big conscious effort to to actually reduce the number of things I'm working on, so I can create some space for it. So. So we'll uh, in the you know people my actually I put all of my slides from my class online and they're descriptive enough that you know people could get a sense if the, if if people want a preview uh, it's on my website and and I know you'll provide a link uh, to to those to so those you're so, send so it that's to me. yes and um, so yeah we'll see maybe maybe it'll be sooner I would like it to be sooner you know the thing is is it's not this isn't my research area and and I. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, uh, every time I spend a, a few, like I've got a huge, I've got like about 40 books piled up that I want to read that I, that are part of this. And, and every time I read five of them, I rethink what I want to say. And, and I, and, but I rethink it a little less each time. So I'm narrowing down to, I'm narrowing down to something where my own views are stable, uh, and uh, and maybe that's a maybe that's the wrong way to think of a book. But but if you've sort of spent the last, if you spent your entire career being like an applied microeconomist who's doing very very precise things, it's very very hard to sort of yes, willfully be sloppy or make mistakes. It's a yes. big change. And um, well, yeah. I, I'm, I recommend against that willfully sloppy part. But I think <laughs> you do have to sometimes say we're not sure, but it seems like, and I think that's probably okay. And right, it put those ideas out into the public discussion would be a good thing. Let, let's close with. Well, may, maybe Bill Gates should just should, should just buy, buy me out for a year. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so or I two. can write it. That's, let's, let's, or somebody let's that yourself, would be welcome. You know, do take two years. Tell them you need two or three. Right, you got forty books there. You got a lot to think about. You need time to digest them. Um, That's right. The, billion, the billionaires listening to your podcast who, there are a few. who want to read that book. There's yeah. a way to make that happen, right? Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't. I expect crickets, but <laughs> but uh, but let's try. Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, let's close with a related issue, which is: Do you ever feel uncomfortable, especially when you're out in the field, trying to fix other people's lives? I, you know, if, if I said to you. You know, I noticed you have a sibling who's having a tough time. I, I just think you need to let me uh, – let's I want to make it a little different. You said you have children, right? Mm-hmm. So suppose I came – you and I have never met as far as I know. But suppose I came for uh, to dinner at your house and I'm looking at your kids and I think, boy, they're doing a terrible job raising their kids. <laughs> and I said, Chris, you know, I've got four kids and they're all – teenagers and beyond, I've, I've accumulated a huge amount of wisdom. So if you just leave me for a couple of weeks or maybe six months, I think I'd really whip your kids into shape and I think they'd have better lives. You'd say, you're a dangerous monster. I don't want to ever <laughs> see you again. So what's the difference between that and what we sometimes are doing overseas? I, there's a certain mm-hmm. implicit arrogance there that I, I worry about. Do you worry about no, it? I do. Well, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned this. I mean, I send my kids to the Chicago Lab School for exactly this reason. Like, there's a set of uh, incredibly talented, ideological, sometimes evidence-based, probably yeah. sometimes not, but really terrific uh, people and, and who can do a great job. And I, I've outsourced an enormous amount of my <laughs> child-rearing to them. And I'm cheaper so than they are. I'm available. <laughs> so, so... Uh, so 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 I, I on some level I have made that choice. It's fun. Um, 
I so that's part of it. I do I do think that um, I, I I think that you have to approach it in a particular way that that minimizes. You know, I think you have to avoid being arrogant. I think that we could. This would be a longer discussion about one's, you know, how how to sort of. I, I think humility and a degree of hubris, a degree of, of humbleness, um, rather than the hubris you usually see, is is really fundamental. I I think it takes uh, trying to spend a lot of time and really trying to understand. I think I think that's why I have. I really have only worked in depth in maybe three countries in my career, uh, at least on what I'm doing my own work. And that's because I, I think that I really want to understand a place and spend a lot of time there and, and be you know, contribute in that way. So, so I, that's my, been my personal approach and arguably I could, certainly I could improve in a lot of ways. Um, but, but I, I, I do think, I think the, maybe the, the, more tragic thing is the inequality that, that I think comes from the fact that, listen, if I go to Colombia, where I am working right now, there's an enormous amount of human capital. I can come and I have a specific expertise. I've specialized, you know, in the sense that we academics, we specialize such that there's really just one or two people in the world who really knows what we know. And so if I can go, I can go anywhere in the world and say something and be useful because I specialize so much. And that's true of anybody. And, and this is also true of a lot of Colombians. Like there's an enormous amount of human capital there and some deep problems and they're doing a pretty good job actually. And so I can go and help a little bit just by specializing my particular way or bringing some perspective that I have from the U S or Liberia or Chicago or whatever. Uh, so that's an easy place to work in that sense. Um, when I go to when I go to Ethiopia, which is a place with also a lot of human capital, but definitely worse than uh, Colombia, which is where I spend just a little bit of time, I can still be useful because I can I still have a lot of peers there, policymakers and and other academics that I can I we can engage with as as equals and and I can do my thing and bring my bright idea or my specialized knowledge from some other place and be very useful. Where it's more tragic is in northern Uganda or Liberia, where there's just no human capital in the sense. Nobody has the opportunity to go and become what I've become. The systems are just so broken and the place is so poor and the that, that, that there's almost no Liberian or northern Ugandan who's had the opportunity to to do what I do. And there are very few people who I'd think of as policy or intellectual peers. There's lots, of course, but they I mean they're just not, they don't have they haven't had the same access of and time and thing and, and so and, and they're if they if they are brilliant, they're probably not in policy uh, in these places because the government's so broken. And so um, even though one or two of the people I'd say in my own intellectual life are Liberian or northern Ugandan that have influenced me the most, though there's just I can only name a couple. And not a huge number, and so it's the fact that's what weighs on me. The fact that I go and uh, I, by necessity, there's just this gross inequality of history and all sorts of things that have contributed to them desperately needing anybody to do something. Uh, and then, really, the things I do aren't really addressing the fundamental problems, the things that are fundamentally broken, uh, and 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 leading people not to succeed. So there is like a there, 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 it, you know, you can go and I think you can put your shoulder behind the boulder and push along with everybody else as much as possible. But, but it's, it, it, there, it's, yeah, it's complicated. It's really complicated. And I've never really figured that out. Maybe that's why I've drifted towards working in Chicago and Columbia in the last few years because of some of that discomfort. 
My guest today has been Chris Blattman. Chris, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.